0: My name is Paloma Pavel. And I'm co-founder with Carl Anthony of Breakthrough Communities. Our organization is committed to building multiracial leadership and growing a healthy, just, and sustainable world. Today, I have the opportunity to introduce Professor John A. Powell, small letters. He is a trusted friend a powerful ally, a strategic partner, and a compañero in building a national movement for regional equity, social justice, and the environment. It's my privilege to introduce him here at our gathering in Marin in this place, as well as the strategic partners beaming pioneers around the world. I'd like to begin with a symbolic story which embodies several of the qualities of John's work which most inspire me. I invite you to travel with me now to the border, La Frontera, of Guatemala and Belize. It's the final day of my apprenticeship with Don Eligio Ponte, a Mayan bush doctor who works from a tradition of medicine where healing is on a continuum from the individual transformation of consciousness to negotiating and mediating conflicts between individuals, to overcoming fragmentation within our larger communities, and allowing deep healing to occur on all those system levels. It's sunset, and it's my final time to accompany Donna Ligio in the rainforest, and we weave our way through the dense understory of the rainforest, and as we're rounding a bend, I reach for this branch, and as I'm reaching for this branch and I'm listening to the Mayan chants and prayers of Don Eligio in the the background, all of a sudden he shouts at me. This has never happened before. Cuidado! And he pulls me very tightly to him, and I'm kind of in shock and stunned, and I'm looking for a, a dangerous snake or some animal that's in the bushes. And he tells me, he says, there are many poisonous plants in the rainforest. That vine that you were about to grab has a poisonous sap that eats through flesh, stopping only at bone. And like my eyes are growing wide and I'm, my chest is tightening. And then he walks over and speaks softly and he pulls these bushes aside and reaches for this root. And he said, but the antidote is always found within four feet. Again, he said it, there are many poisonous plants in the rainforest, but the antidote is always found within four feet. Donna Ligio has passed from this life, but today we have the opportunity to learn directly from Professor John Powell, a remarkable civil rights attorney and an urban spiritual leader who exemplifies three qualities also found in this Mayan Bush doctor. First, a powerful spiritual presence. Second, a keen diagnostic intelligence. This is someone who understands the poison that's challenging our lives, our cities, our communities. Third, practical healing knowledge for what ails us. John understands antidotes. John was born in Detroit, and he was, at the age of 16, offered a scholarship to Harvard, and he turned it down when he discovered that they didn't accept women, and he went to Stanford instead. (laughs) He's also been on a spiritual journey all of his life, sort of the inner journey and the outer journey. The inner journey at age 11, he began studying Chinese and also understanding what does it mean to be a Christian in a world where a billion people are coming from a different cosmology. And he went on an interfaith exploration that has been at the base of much of his work all his life. As a civil rights attorney, He has woven many bodies of knowledge together from urban planning to community development to studying brain science and how that affects our transformative agenda for race. Taken together, all of these bodies of knowledge over many decades demonstrate that the solution to our global problems are also found close to home within the innovation and leadership of marginalized communities, where the historically disenfranchised are leading the way and linking with everyone else to set models for the whole of society. He's done this work on some of the front lines of Detroit, of Camden, New Jersey, of Atlanta. He's done this work also in California, We're working with him now to help bring his uh, geographic information systems mapping to help with climate change. Returning to Detroit, this is a good example of the power of John's work. He faced the challenge of 40,000 vacant properties and worked to create a land banking system, not only for Detroit, but for all of Michigan. He also worked on regional transportation plans that helped to fix it first, bringing people back from sprawl into re-inhabiting the urban core in a vital way, and giving back to the city of his own birth, often offering that powerful spiritual presence to help coalitions reunite when we were at loggerheads with one another. In Camden and across the country, he's brought that keen diagnostic solutions to his GIS mapping, and he's also led the way with something called opportunity housing, a new model of looking at where we place housing so that we're not just looking at sort of the structures of buildings themselves, but how they're placed within a structure of opportunities in a region. And in Baltimore, he he did unprecedented legal um, litigation on moving this affordable housing model into the region of Baltimore. He now works um, on the board at Tides. He's also the director of the Kerwin Institute for Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State. And under his leadership, he's developed this creative framework of a transformative agenda on race where we're not only thinking about what is it that we need to transform inside of ourselves, but what are these larger structures in society that we also need to transform? What does it mean when you can tell how many years someone will have by their zip code. I'd like you to now welcome father of Sanita and Fawn, grandfather of Amma, who's here in the Bay Area, a remarkable being who is a dancer with the cosmos, a brilliant thinker, an amazing strategist, and a dedicated peacemaker. Please join me in welcoming Professor John Powell to our beloved community, Bioneers.
1: Good morning. morning. So I'm a student of jazz. Uh, (laughs) You probably wonder why I'm telling you that this morning. Uh, I prepared a PowerPoint, which I will show you part of, but not the whole thing, because I've heard incredible presentations from yesterday, from this morning, from Nina, from Linda, from Ken. that actually touches on many of the things that are in my PowerPoint. So rather than go over that in great detail, I'm going to play some jazz. (laughs) And hopefully, you will play with me. Uh, So first of all, uh, the technician just told me we need five minutes to fix the whatever. So he's playing jazz, too. Um, so first of all, I'd like to thank you, because the work you're doing and the work Nina and Ken are doing is critical for the world. And my message is, how do we deepen that work? How do we broaden it? How do we think about the interconnection? Now, you've heard about interconnections yesterday. You heard about interconnections today. You can hear about interconnections in a little bit. But I'm gonna introduce for some of you a slightly different concept. Not just interconnections, but intra connection. So what's the difference between interconnections and intra connections? Well, one way of thinking about it is that interconnections is connecting people, things to each other, systems approach. Some of the teachings now that's coming out of places like quantum physics says that it's not just things that are connected, that in fact, there are no things. What we call things are actually processes. And when processes interact, intra with other processes, it changes the process itself. So one way of saying it is, if you enter into a long-term relationship, a marriage, it's not just a relationship between you and another person. That person, that relationship changes you and the other person. You become something transformed, someone transformed. It's constitutive, it's not just contractual. So our relationships then, and I think they have the PowerPoint now, our relationships then are not just interconnected, they're interconnected because what we bring to them is our whole being. And a whole being become exposed, becomes changed, becomes transformed. So that's the theme to introduce the idea of intraconnectedness, and to think about that in terms of everything: people, plants, animals, matter, everything. So that's the message that we are connected to everything, interconnected and interconnected, and then taking that message and thinking about what would that mean if we we were to organize our society so we really believe that, as if we really believe that. How will we construct our space? How will we construct our schools, our neighborhoods, our systems? So it's not enough just to have it as an attitude. It has to be reflected in everything that we do and say. There's a jazz musician who died a few years ago named Don Cherry, and in one of his songs, he says, the inside is not, the outside is too. (laughs) So, I want you to dance with me as we sort of think about what are the implications of being deeply inter- and interconnected. I'm trying to get it uh, to move. It's not moving. There it is, I did it the old-fashioned way. Um, This is James Baldwin. Some of you may remember James Baldwin. James Baldwin was one of the most powerful thinkers, writers in African-American, African-American gay. Uh, And he wrote this in the 1940s. He says, we are all androgynous, not only because we are all born of a woman impregnated by the seed of a man, but because each of us helplessly and forever contains the other, male and female, female and male, white and black, black and white. We are a part of each other. Many of my countrymen appear to find this fact exceedingly inconvenient (laughs) and even unfair. And so very often do I. But none of us can do anything about it. (laughs) So this morning, I'm talking to Spencer, who's one of the technicians here behind the scenes, so you may not see Spencer. Spencer. life is organized around something called whiteness, so he thinks of himself as white. Uh, And I say that because we organize ourselves around different identities, and sometimes they shift. So Spencer's organized around whiteness. And he's telling me a story about his family and how he finds out his family is not only white, but also black, but it's also awkward in this society, in this space, to recognize that we are of the same family. And yesterday, someone talked about being our brother's keeper. Racism and segregation not only denies the fact that we are brothers and sisters keeper, it denies the fact that we are brothers and sisters, brother and sister. It's an expression of disconnectedness, it's an expression that denies the interrelationship between the human family. And it's this denial that challenges us today. And I think it challenges us not just in terms of social justice, it challenges us in every facet of our life, whether we talk about the environment, whether we talk about spirituality, whether we talk about social justice. If we deny our interconnectedness, then all of our other efforts will fail. Today, we more increasingly acknowledge that we are connected in some fashion. My guess is if many of you looked at your clothes, at your shoes, at your cars, you would find that they were made in China, or in Brazil, or in India. Some people are finding that inconvenient, but it's a fact. We are connected. When we talk about globalization, it's talking about connections largely at a trade and business level. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about the interconnectedness of the climate. And yet, when we get to people, sometimes we have a hard time acknowledging this connection. Jeffrey Sachs recently wrote something, and you may know Jeffrey Sachs' work. He's an economist. He's not considered a radical. He doesn't talk about race very much. But he wrote a piece recently where he says, the United States is in decline, in part because it's failing to deal with the social diversity. That as the public becomes more diverse, more people try to withdraw from the public. And so the opposition to public education or public health care or public welfare is not welfare, it's not education, it's not health care, it's the public that people are reacting to. It's an effort to deny the interconnectedness. And as people withdraw from that public, and try to retreat in this shrinking private space. They fail to realize, like Don Cherry, that the inside is not and the outside is too. So we need to be in relationships. We are in relationships. And I'm sure you've heard the story where two young fish are swimming and they swim past an old fish. And the old fish says, how's the water, boys? And the young fish swim on a little further, and then they says, what's water? (laughs) That's what we're like. We are swimming in a sea. The water is one of the things that connect us. But most of the time, we're unconscious of it. And so part of our job is to become conscious of it, to celebrate it, and to reflect it in everything that we do. Now, saying we're connected does not mean that we lose our individuality. Our individuality only becomes real when we recognize our connectivity. Our individuality is not the same as isolation. It's proper relationships. And when we think about this proper relationship between both the individual and everything else, in fact, it's the everything else, that brings the individual into being. And when we think about the proper relationships, it has ethical, cultural, moral consequences. What would the world look like if we were to take this seriously? To say that we are related is not enough. A slave and a master are related. An abusive husband and a victim wife are related. So it's not enough to acknowledge that we are connected. The question is, what are the proper relationships? How do we proper relate to each other in an appropriate way? And this is not just an individual question, this is a question that also implicates our structures, our society. If we structure our space so that we are separate, again, we call it segregation, then how do we have proper relationships? It's to restructure our schools so that we are isolated by race, by class, by gender, by nationality, by religion. How do we have the proper relationships? It's not enough to have positive feelings or good attitudes. We must make our structures and institutions do the work of our most positive values. That's the challenge. And it's a challenge that is hard for us, especially in a society where we glorify the isolated individual, Or we glorify John Wayne, who doesn't live anywhere, who rides into town, shoots it up, and leaves. <laughs> what would be the proper relationship? Some of us may think, well, at least, at least in my... Unconscious, I'm an individual. It's my unconscious. And even that turns out to be not true. Even our unconscious is social and related. And I'm going to show you a couple of slides that plays with this. So if you're from the West, you're likely to see line A and line B being of different lengths. If you're from Africa or the East, you're likely to see line A and line B of the same length. Now, in fact, line A and line B are of the same length, but that's not the point. The point is is that the way we see the world is affected by our cultural upbringing. If you're from the West, you're likely to see some people sitting around in a room. If you're from Tanzania, where I spent some time and my daughter was born, what you're likely to see when you look at this picture is people sitting under a tree and a woman with something on top of her head. (laughs) It's not the picture that's changing, it's our cultural understanding and unconscious that brings something to the picture and helps us make sense of it. Now, I'm going to show you one more of these examples, and this is a dancing woman. Um, And what I want you to do is just look at what direction she's dancing, and then maybe see even, even if you can change the direction. Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have gotten her to change direction so far? Okay, a good third of you. I'll give the other two-thirds at least another 30 seconds. OK She didn't change directions. She did. she did not. You changed directions. You changed how you were seeing her. And this is going on all the time. And how we see things, how we process things, is not just an individual phenomenon, it's a cultural phenomenon. And so, as we think about right relationships, as we think about interacting, we have to think about the work that our cultures, that our structures, that our language, that our physical space. Carl Anthony is here, he's an architect. he can tell you, the way we structure space carries values. There's research now showing that if you build a building and you build the bathrooms often in one place, it has a negative impact on women. Anyone who's been to a sporting event has seen this happen, as the women are lined out, waiting for the bathroom, and the men are zipping in and out of urinals. These carry values, not intentionally, but in fact. So we have to think about the proper relationships. And when we think about those relationships, It doesn't mean we get into some heavy guilt thing uh, or some personal angst. It means we are individually and collectively responsible and responsive to all of these structures. How do we make them work to reflect the best of us? Everything is linked. We're both consumers of food and we're food. So I'll tell you this little story. There's a guy who's deeply religious, and he comes home, and as he's about to go into his house, he notices a bear uh, near his house, and he starts running. And the bear notices the man, and the bear is chasing the man. And the man is running and running, and the bear is running and running. The man finally is totally exhausted, and he realizes he's not going to outrun the bear. So he kneels down, and he prays, and he says, God, I ask you to do your will and possibly deliver me from this bear. And then he looks next to him, and the bear is kneeling down. (laughs) And the bear says, God, I'd like to thank you for this food prepared. (laughs) So we're all food, and we're all consuming food. And how do we have the proper relationship? What is the proper relationship? And this is complex, because we exist in systems where these relationships are not singular, they're not one-dimensional, they're multidimensional, and they're dynamic, they're constantly changing. And we understand this when we think about the climate, when we think about the environment, but sometimes we fail to appreciate this when we think about people. And Ruth Benedict, who is considered the mother of anthropology, she talks about high and low synergistic systems. And she says a high synergistic system is a system that's structured to support community and individuality, and health, and to be sustainable. And she identified the United States as a low synergistic system. So our our job is to turn it into a high synergistic system that not only protects the bear, and the rainforest but people in fact we cannot protect the bear in the rainforest if we don't protect people so this is a dynamic world this is a world where we dance and uh, a friend of mine's written a paper and the paper says matter matters And what she's suggesting, and this is what's coming out of the new science, is that matter is not inert. So it's not only sentinel beings that we have to be concerned about, we have to be concerned about our relationship to things. And as you remember, I suggested things are not things. Things are actually processes. They're constantly changing. They're constantly interacting with us. So when you take all of this and then apply it to what we call social justice, What's the proper relationship between people in the United States and the rest of the world? What's the proper relationship to people in the South and people in the North? What's the proper relationship between me and my neighbor? And what we call the other, as Toni Morrison said, is already inside of us. And she argues that diversity is both an internal project we are diverse inside of ourselves, and an external project. What are the proper relationships? And from this perspective then, the question of social justice, environmental justice, justice period, gender justice, economic justice, all of these things are implicated. And while the, the effort is daunting, as Linda already suggested, 200 people. What, there are a couple of thousand people here? There's a lot for us to do, but this is our life. Martin Luther King, we've all been impacted by him. His professional life was 13 years. He graduated when he was 26, he died when he was 39. How much did he accomplish in 13 years? I like jazz, but also have been known to listen to some Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix died when he was 27. Otis Redding died when he was 27. There's a lot that we can do if we come together to do it. And so, again, my challenge to you is that, yes, the task is daunting, but the opportunity is great. We have to think about changing ourselves, changing our communities, and changing the arrangement of our institutions and structures. The way we relate to each other matters. And again, what I want to suggest to you, not just in terms of race as a special pleader, because race is really an expression of a much larger system. In fact, the early expression of racism, because race as we know it had not been invented, was actually religion. The first enslavement of people from Africa, the arrangement was, because the church was the most powerful institution at the time, the Catholic Church, you can enslave people if they were not Christians. Nothing about race, nothing about color. And so they enslaved Africans because they were not Christians. And the Africans working next to their European brothers and sisters who were also working hard but not enslaved, they got to leave after a while. They said, how come you get to leave? And they said, we get to leave because we're Christians. I said, "Is that right?" I said, "Yeah. Can I become a Christian?" <laughs> now this is a true story. There was a huge conversion of Africans to Christianity. <clears throat> and the slaveholder said, "This is not working out so well. <laughs> we need another system. And out of that system eventually came race, as we understand it today. But my point is, the process of othering people, the process of separating ourselves from people, the process of exploiting people, has long been with us. But let me end by just saying this, so people don't misunderstand me. Race is socially constructed, but it's constructed through the way we arrange space, the way we arrange institutions, the way our unconscious works, but it's not inevitable. We have, we're wired to see others, and we're wired to connect. We're wired to differentiate, and we're wired to connect with each other. Which of those become most salient, and most dominant depends on us, (coughs) but not just as individuals, us collectively, and us in terms of how we build our institutions and structures. And that is the challenge we face today. Thank you.